What if you knew while during your lift, if your body put itself into a certain position, you knew that was fatigue. You knew exactly how many reps and how many sets to do based on what your body was telling you. That is what we're going to talk about today. I'm Dr. Emily Kybird. I'm a chiropractic physician and movement expert. I help women with Hashimoto's learn how to work out without the burnout. All right, let's jump into this episode. So this is a topic near and dear to my heart. No one talks about this except practitioners who are doing research or are treating patients and are probably not on social media. So there is a certain position your body will naturally default into when it is fatigued or it is nearing fatigue or failure in an exercise. This pathological position, you see this all the time in the gym, it is cued by trainers, and it's on social media, even from people with a million plus followers. Demonstrated by a fitness pro, there is this rippling in their low back, right in their muscles, right at their lumbar junction. They are stuck in extension in their low back or their neck on a lift. And once they are done with their lift, they're kind of walking around with this puff chest and their ribs are flared. This is what I call extension compression compensation. It is this arching or falling into extension when you start to get fatigued or when you hit failure in your lift. If you are actually training this position, and there are some techniques out there that actually train this position, and I'll tell you why (laughs) I'm not a fan of that, is this chronic hyperextension. And specifically today, we'll talk about the lumbar spine. And different continuing education seminars have a name for this kind of patterning. I like to call it a extension compression compensation, where you're basically over-recruiting your paraspinal muscles, the low back muscles, as a compensation to stabilize the spine. There's a lack of adequate core stabilization, intra-abdominal pressurization. I'm going to call it IAP, intra-abdominal pressure. And then this leads to an elevation of the rib cage, flaring of the ribs, an anterior tilt or a forward tilting of the pelvis, kind of a dumping forward of the pelvis. For the layman, it is kind of like a banana back, right? We default into this position when we are fatigued or when we are hitting failure on our lift due to a lack of, it's a compensation for a lack of proper intra-abdominal pressure, a lack of proper core stabilization. And some of the different movement systems have different names for this. So Vladimir Yanda called it lower cross syndrome way back in the day before I was even born in DNS, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. Pavel Kolaj calls it the open scissor, where if you're visualizing as you're listening to this, the diaphragm, that muscle between the lungs and the organs is where it attached to the front of the ribs is fired upwards. The ribs, the front ribs are tilted up and the pelvis is in an anterior tilt, and your diaphragm and your pelvic floor are not parallel to one another. So in DNS, Pavel Kolaj calls it the open scissor. In PRI, Postural Restoration Institute, founded by Ron Hareska, who's a physical therapist, calls it a PEC pattern, a posterior extensor chain pattern, where the erector spinae and the latissimus dorsi specifically are hyperactive, right? But similar position, flared ribs, overarching of the low back, lumbar spine. Richard Olm, one of my mentors, uh, who is also trained in DNS, he went through the PRI courses. He is also a big strength fanatic out of Ohio. He has a great clinic. My mother sees him when she goes visits my sister in Ohio, calls it an ECSS, an extension compression stabilizing strategy. And why is this important, right? So for the Hashi ladies who are like, 
you're rambling off a bunch of institutions. I want you to know because I didn't make this up. Sometimes people will just make up a methodology. This is coming from people who have studied the bodies, who have studied how babies move and hit their milestones and learn their movement patterns through that first year of life. That is DNS, Pavel Collage, Vladimir Yanda also did that. And they found that babies move a certain way. As we learn our neuromuscular education, our neuromotor patterns in that first year of life, we have to hit our milestones. So why not continue to train those milestones that we hit as adults? Why train something, for example, like draw the belly up and in, squeeze the shoulder blades? Babies don't do that. So like if you've ever done Pilates, you will hear that cue a ton. Pull your belly button up and in, draw the belly button to the spine, draw up and in. And then for posture, squeeze your shoulder blades, pinch your shoulder blades on the back. A baby never does that. You know what kind of baby does that? A baby who is not developing properly, which is about 30% of kids, and is not hitting their milestones properly and will probably down the road have neurodevelopmental issues, joint pain, joint stabilization issues, joint hypermobility, as well as cognitive issues, right? So why is this important, especially while we're lifting? Intra-abdominal pressure. So when we take a breath in and we brace, our diaphragm pushes the organs down and those organs push our spine out of extension. It creates this spinal stiffness when we lift. And only during that moment we lift. We don't want to do that as we're walking through the world. We want to be able to step, load, flex and extend, side bend, rotate as we need. But when we lift, we want that spinal stiffness. We want that spinal rigidity because then it creates less chance for injury. And this is the difference inside thyroid strong and inside a thyroid strong lifting style compared to any other kettlebell training out there. And no one really talks about this. People say, use good form, protect your back, engage your core. But what does that actually mean, right? Is there a step-by-step explanation of how to do that, where to breathe, where to place your feet, how to turn your toes out, how to get into a deadlift, where should your hips be, right? There's a billion things on Instagram of good form, bad form, but no one teaches you how to get into it and why to get into it. Why is intra-abdominal pressure important? Why is spinal stiffness important while we're lifting a weight? That is the thyroid strong lifting style. You'll even see people who do kettlebells or lift, like swing a kettlebell at the top of the swing, this huge arch in their back at the top of the swing. That should not be happening, right? And, you know, this person has millions of followers on their Instagram. Adequate intra-abdominal pressure, core stabilization leads to spinal stiffness. Inadequate intra-abdominal pressure, if we're not pressurizing well in our core, leads to hyperlordosis, which means basically like a sway back, a banana back in our low back. So what happens exactly in this extension, compression, compensation pattern? This is what happens when we start to hit our last rep and we hit fatigue we default into this extension compression compensation pattern. I'm going to call it ECC. There's an overactivity of the paraspinal muscles, so erector spinae, quadratus lumborum, to name a couple, that stabilizes spine. They are getting overactive because there's a compensation for a lack of intra-abdominal pressure, a lack of proper IAP. Generating good intra-abdominal pressurization means that the diaphragm our abdominal wall, the musculature that wraps from the back of the spine to the front, and our pelvic floor are all working together in a coordinated manner all at the same time. Without good 
intra-abdominal pressure, we will not have good spinal stiffness. And when we don't have good, proper spinal stiffness, the body overactivates the extensors, right? Some people call this a posterior chain. And this was what happens on like the last rep of a deadlift. Or if you ever see a CrossFit athlete do a muscle up, once they're hitting fatigue or they hit failure and they start to extend their neck and their low back, they're creating this extension, this sway back. They're creating this compression, like jamming the back of their joints and overactivating their paraspinals to try and get that last muscle up. This is what the body does, and this is what the body does when we're babies in that first year of life trying to hit our milestones. So this imbalance of the muscle, overactivity in the low back muscles, the paraspinal muscles, results in this kind of dumping forward of the pelvis, this anterior pelvic tilt. It elevates the rib cage, right, which has a huge impact on pain, on function, on injury. And some trainers, which blows my mind, actually promote this. They talk about getting the back canyon, like let's get the back canyon and are actually proponent to get a deeper back canyon, more building up of the lumbar paraspinals when this should not be the case. It's not a good cue. It's not a good place to focus your attention on in terms of that positioning of the lift. The muscle orientation of the paraspinal muscle fibers in relation to the spine the way they're oriented can apply massive compressive force on the spine, which can result in not only axial compression and hyperextension, but can negatively affect someone's function and increase their risk of injury. This is why inside Thyroid Strong, you'll never hear me focus on back extension exercises. Some PTs will do this for rehabbing the back or to strengthen, quote unquote, the core. They'll have people do supermans or where you lay face down and you're basically arching your back to lift your chest with no support from your head, from your arms, or your legs. And I don't love this because I don't want overactivity there. I want to create good intra-abdominal pressure, which usually means teaching someone how to breathe properly, breathe properly under load, and then breathe and brace properly under load. This is always a red flag to me when I'm talking about talking to other clinicians and they're like, oh, I have my patient do supermans. I'm kind of like, oh, well, why do you have that person do it, right? Oh, to strengthen their core, to strengthen their back, to get them out of back pain. Okay, well, what's their diagnosis, right? And on and on and on. So usually someone who's giving supermans, maybe not the most seasoned practitioner. Other things that can happen when we default into this fatigued failure position of extension compression compensation is it leads to compression of the facet joints. The facet joints are the joints on the back of the spine. They can refer pain locally. They can also refer pain down to the SI joints. They can also mimic disc pain if not diagnosed properly. The facet is one piece of something called a neural arch, okay? So the neural arch is basically the back of the vertebra. And the back of the vertebra has three main purposes. One of them is to block motion, so a facet jamming into another facet upon extension, and it is also meant to guide motion. Number two, it's meant to protect the spinal cord and the nerve roots. And then number three, it's a place where muscles attach. So if you are stuck in this extension compression compensation, your weight is shifted backwards towards that loading of the neural arch versus loading in the body of the vertebra, which is this big round chunk of bone. 
And when you load the back of the vertebra, that neural arch is much thinner and much more frail than the body of the vertebra and can lead to a break in the, the neural arch, which is common in gymnasts. And think about when gymnasts, every time they land, they do this big arch, right? Super common in young gymnasts can also happen in adults. I know a lot of people are thinking, well, M, most people with low back pain have disc injuries, usually from a flexion load or bending forward, which can very well happen. But ask yourself, why did someone bend over to pick up a piece of paper and throw out their back? It wasn't the piece of paper. It wasn't that heavy. It's because of the quality of the disc material. So the discs, think of them as like jelly donuts between the spine, get nutrients through a process called imbibition, right? They get to imbibe. And it's kind of like this idea of like squishing and unsquishing the discs. Think of it as like a sponge, right? You can't get more nutrients from a sponge that is already soaked. You got to squeeze out the sponge, then let it soak all the nutrients up, squeeze out the sponge to squeeze everything out, and then put it in water and let it soak everything up. Soaking up nutrients as well as like the surrounding interstitial fluid. So during this process of flexion and extension, bending forward and extending, the discs are doing this sponge thing. They're squeezing out and then soaking up nutrients and fluid. And if you're only stuck in this extension compression compensation, the discs will not do that. They will just kind of stay stuck and then they start to get dry. And then the outer kind of shell of the disc will also get dry. And if you think of a dry disc that is stuck in extension all the time, then goes to bend forward to pick up a piece of paper, throws your back out, tears that outer dry ligamentous structure, then you throw out your back. So accessing extension and flexion is very important. Under load, you want a rigid spine. You don't want to be stuck in extension or flexion. So someone using a lot of extension compression compensation stuck in extension. They have a high amount of tension in their spinal extensors, those two lanes of muscles going down either side of the spine. And this is places for very intense, very chronic compressive force on the disc. And this can result in tension in the annular fibers, which are the fibers around the disc. And when there is tension on those fibers, this can pl place chronic as well as acute stress on the fibers, which can eventually lead to a disc herniation. Another issue with chronically being in an extension compression compensation is spinal stenosis, more bone growth around the spinal canal where the spinal cord goes through. So Extension actually feels worse and usually happens in like 70 and 80 year olds where they can't stand up straight because of spinal stenosis. Surgery is not very great, doesn't have great outcomes. And then this person can't stand up straight and really becomes very deconditioned because they can't walk, they're using a walker, and eventually they just get stuck on the couch or in bed. I have a relative, an uncle that's dealing with that right now. So you do not want to be playing with this in your younger years, training it to have more extension compression compensation because spinal stenosis down the road is gonna be more likely. How does this have carryover into our lifts? This is one of the reasons why I prefer front squats or goblet squats with kettlebells versus a back squat. A back squat, you have to kind of wedge the bar in, arch your back to get the bar into place. And it is forcing you to have hyperactivity of your lumbar paraspinals 
and forcing you into this extension compression compensation. Yes, you could load heavier. You could do like double body weight, triple body weight back squat, which you can't do with a front squat. But are we trying to be power lifters or are we trying to be functional human beings on this planet? So I like front squats because it forces you to not flare your ribs and to have your diaphragm parallel to your pelvic floor. This is one of the reasons why I love starting with a floor press versus an overhead press for the women in Thyroid Strong. So floor press is you're laying on the ground, your knees are bent, your feet are on the floor. You roll to the side, grab the bell, push it towards the sky. So the bell, your arm is at a 90 degree angle to your head because the bell is towards the sky and your head's on the floor. Versus an overhead press, you have so many things that you have to control and think about. Your feet, tension built up in the legs squeezing your glutes, getting your core engaged, making sure your diaphragm is parallel to your pelvic floor and then pressing overhead. So a lot of people who press overhead and are newer or newbies will arch their back to get the bell up. Now they're putting themselves into this extension compression compensation. Well, I don't want that person to do that. I want them to learn how to breathe and brace and find their intra-abdominal pressure properly and then get the bell overhead. So I love starting women in thyroid strong with a floor press versus an overhead press. It's also why when we do start to overhead press eventually in Thyroid Strong, I have women bell down so that they're not um, hitting fatigue as quicker. So they're not hitting fatigue as quickly. So if you're pressing and you hit fatigue, you'll start to arch to get the bell up. Well, if you bell down, you can go through that move, learn the muscle memory of that patterning of the movement without kicking in those lumbar erectors without going into that extension compression compensation. So I sometimes have women bell down once they start to overhead press and they're like, well, it's not that heavy. I'm not fatiguing. That's okay. I'm just trying to get you into the move with good form without defaulting to that fatigue position. It's also why I like kettlebells over a barbell, right? To navigate a barbell around your chin as you're pressing, you need to arch your back. Yes, you want to create a shelf for your shoulder and your lats, but I don't want you to be overly recruiting your low back muscles to get the barbell overhead. So that's why I love a kettlebell press versus a barbell overhead press because you don't have to navigate the barbell around the chin. So there's so many reasons and there's so many whys. Like why did, you you know, whenever I do someone else's program, I'm like, why did they program it that way? Why is this? Why, why, why? And it's actually very hard for me to do someone else's programming because I don't know their why. And it might be more from we're trying to do a little more plyometrics to recruit type two muscle fibers or whatever it is. But I want the why for functionality for my body. I just want to be a human on this earth who has enough energy to play with my kids, enough muscle mass to feel good in my body. And I don't want to be in pain or be injured. So optimal movement involves balanced activation of all muscles around a joint. And not only are those muscles working in balanced action with each other, but their activity should match the load. So picking up a deadlift that is 20 pounds, your breath and your brace is going to be in the intra-abdominal pressure that you recruit is going to be very different than a bodyweight deadlift. And then that is going to be very different in terms of the activity of the muscles and how much you brace compared to of a double body weight deadlift. So you want the activity of the muscles to be as little as necessary while still picking up the weight. 
and this will minimize the force within the joint and it will reduce the load and the strain on the tissues that are involved in that lift. The brace or the pressurization in your core matches the load is another important point. So why is this so common, this extension compression compensation? A lot of trainers will focus on a barbell movement. It's one of the reasons why I prefer kettlebells. Number two is a lot of trainers don't program enough unilateral movement. What's a unilateral movement? Like a split squat or a lunge or something where one foot's forward and one foot's back and you're having to control that rotational component of a movement with that split stance. I throw a lot of unilateral movements inside thyroid strong for this very reason. Number three, trainers love to focus on posterior train and strengthen the back. I get it. A lot of people who sit all day have glute amnesia, their glutes turn off. This is part of the posterior chain. But one of the reasons, specifically the lumbar paraspinals can become overactive, is when someone does not know how to brace or create intra-abdominal pressure in their core. So teach someone that first, then build their posterior chain. That's how we do it inside Thyroid Strong. Don't teach someone posterior chain activities, have them over activate their lumbar paraspinals and then give them back pain and then say that the exercise is to blame or the program is to blame. It's a lot of reasons why people go through many different trainers and can't find one they like. But in Thyroid Strong, we teach how to breathe and brace properly first, how to create intra-abdominal pressure, how to stay stacked, which is basically how to keep your diaphragm parallel to your pelvic floor. And then we load it on. Number four is when we are in a stress state, we will hyperinflate. We won't exhale enough. And when we exhale enough in an optimal way, it helps the diaphragm become parallel to the pelvic floor. When we don't, we become hyperinflated. We're breathing in too much and then our ribs will flare. Part of it's letting go of the ego. Part of it's constantly being in a fight or flight state. Number five is a lot of the cueing from different trainers literally put someone in this position of extension, compression, compensation in their low back. Some of the cues would be sit your butt back in a deadlift, chest up, right? If you even just think about it, like putting your hips back in a hinge pattern, lifting your chest, I literally cranked down my paraspinals. Drive through your heels, which is going to shift your weight backwards. A lot of trainers will say that coming out of a squat. Those are all things that are shifting your weight backwards, cranking on the low back and putting you in this compensation pattern that is really only happens when we start to hit failure and fatigue. And how we use this inside Thyroid Strong is I give you a reps. So let's say five to eight reps and there's three sets. So you're going to do it three times. And by the last rep, you should hit fatigue. Fatigue being on a scale zero to 10, maybe an eight. Nate being like, ooh, I can barely pick up this weight. A 10 is no way is this weight coming off the ground. Zero is like, I could do a thousand of these, thousand reps of these. Another way to think about it is by the last couple reps, you ask yourself, do I have two more in the tank? And that's it. If you're like, no, I could do five more. You're not picking up a heavy enough weight. A way to know if you're overdoing it, overtraining is by the last couple reps, you're falling into this extension compression compensation. You're having to arch your back or over recruit your lumbar paraspinals to pick up the weight. This is the whole reason for this episode is people all the time ask me, you know, how many reps and sets? How do you create progressive overload? How many reps should I do? When do I know I've done enough? 
this is how you know you've done enough. You do not want to default into this extension compression compensation. If you're already stuck in this, if you already feel like you have a sway back, if you already feel like you're kind of stuck in extension or you have low back pain, SI joint pain, maybe it's even pain that goes down the leg, how do you get yourself out of it? Well, we do this in the inside thyroid strong. I put you in different positions and have you breathe into your low back and you can literally turn off your lumbar paraspinals within like three breaths in these certain positions. One of them looks like a modified child's pose. One of them is rocking, which babies do. We rock before we crawl to get that momentum before moving forward. So all of that is is our rehab videos inside Thyroid Strong. Yes, Thyroid Strong is a kettlebell program, but it's also a rehab program and it's also a functional medicine program. Emotionally, we can turn off our lumbar erectors. If we're constantly in this fight or flight response, we're going to be hyperinflated, not exhaling out enough. And there's drills inside Thyroid Strong to get you out of that emotional state. Also not great to be in that state for your thyroid gland. So we do this all inside Thyroid Strong in our warm up throughout the workout so we don't throw out our low back so we can lift and start to lift heavier without injuring ourselves. All right, ladies, I know this topic is a little more in depth. This topic no one talks about, but this is from 14 years of clinical experience and studying how we learned our movement patterns as babies, doing a lot of continuing education and then applying that continuing education to seeing patients in person. And then putting it in an online format that anyone could follow all across the world. And there are women all across the world inside Thyroid Strong. There are people up in the Yukon, in the UK, uh, Australia, South Africa, all over the world. All right, ladies, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll see you next time.